Hello everyone, welcome back to this episode, our 13th episode, and so the, the penultimate episode in this uh, season, this quarter of the year in which we have discussed uh, pain and suffering, times of trial and um, tempting, and uh, their role and meaning in the Christian life. Uh, I'm not sure we have reached a large number of definitive conclusions, but we've had a lot of fun exploring interesting questions, and we hope to do that again in today's episode. My name's Cameron. G'day, Ken here. Uh, I'm Luke, and uh, I reject the very notion that our purpose is to come to definitive conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yes, well, I'm, I'm Lachlan, and before we get into this week's episode, Cam, we, we need to hear a brief report. How, did it turn out to work? simultaneously doing a podcast recording and sermon preparation. Yeah, not only did it... So it worked very well. Um, the sermon went well. And at the end of last week's um, episode, I um, told all our listeners that not knowing exactly how to end the sermon, I was going to leave it up to the, cho- the choice of the final hymn. And the final hymn was perfect. <sighs> uh, I can't remember if this is the title, but it was one of the lines. It was, Let Me Be Your Hands. Um, and it was about being Christ in the world. And uh, it was the exact one that should have been chosen. So um, it made ending the sermon very well, oh, very easy. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, the lesson quarterly talks about uh, this week uh, Christ in the crucible and reference to the crucifixion event. Uh, that is an event that, uh, stands much study and scrutiny and stands up to, to a lot of thought. It's not something, it is the pivotal event in the Christian church. It's not something that we're old or tired of. It is something we have talked about in previous episodes in this uh, in this last 13 weeks. So we are going to uh, tackle it from a bit of an oblique angle. Uh, we're going to go back to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and I'd like to explore perhaps if there's any ways in which these temptations uh, preempt the temptations that Christ faced in Gethsemane and uh, and what we can learn from that. So um, uh, before we started recording, we were wondering whether perhaps we should read this from Matthew or Luke. And there is a difference, isn't there? A slight one, yes. Um, it, it remains to be seen uh, whether or not we feel like the difference is of much significance. Um, but uh, to, to put it briefly, Luke puts it in the correct order and uh, Matthew has a slightly wrong one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I have no bias whatsoever for saying that. All right. Well, I, I've turned to it in Matthew, so I'm going to read it from Matthew. And then uh, the order of the temptations is different in the Gospel of Luke, but we might, we might compare those as we go along. Uh, so this is Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Oh, I couldn't believe that. Uh, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We could go on, but that's that's the end of verse 11, and there's a little section oh. heading in my uh, New Living Translation that, that moves in verse 12 on to the ministry of Jesus begins. Cam, do we want to sh- keep our focus here on the temptations? I think so. Uh, well, let's see if we run out of things to say <laughs> and the clock's ticking and we're looking for things to fill up the time, then we can move into verse 12. <laughs> okay, I'll keep it open. <laughs> right, just mentally scratching off any possibility of talking about verse 12. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I don't think we need to go through and read uh, in, in Luke because it, it really is remarkably similar. The quotes are the same. Uh, or or very similar. Um, the even the forty days is the same. Um, and the three temptations are the same. It's literally just that in in Luke um, the the temptation of authority uh, comes before the temptation of I I don't really know how to describe that temptation. Um, flying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, uh, flying could be a temptation. Uh, I think yeah. some of us could agree. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty enticing, um, yeah. and uh, it, it it also ends. It it also it also chronologically is the same. It it ends uh, uh, with the devil leaving, and then Jesus begins his ministry. Same mm. same subtitle, uh, a subheading rather. So there there seems to be nothing to dispute between the two versions, really, um, except the chronology. Your, your comment, Luke, about um, you know being unsure what to label the temptation is, I think, a very apt one. Uh, in what sense are these temptations? Uh, it, it seems to suggest a particular set of ethics. No one is harmed by turning rocks into bread. Mm. Yes, well, we can scratch out immediately utilitarianism. And not Because uh, that's that. obviously not the ethical system being applied. Yeah, well, not there is that, no but... negative outcomes of any of these actions according to their utility. Yeah, and Jesus mm. does multiply food, multiply bread later on in his ministry. So there can't be anything inherently sinful about the fabric, the miraculous manufacture of food. Well, you wonder, I mean, I believe that in all other instances where Jesus does perform a miracle involving food, the purpose is to feed others. Mm. He never does it for his own sustenance, and I wonder if that's the distinction here. It's time to fit in a C.S. Lewis quote because it's been far too long. Um, but there is the incident in... The, the minute's been nephew. seven minutes. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's the, the magician's nephew where there is an enchanted apple tree. It's the tree of youth or the garden of youth or something. I, I, I don't have the book in front of me. Uh, but a Diggory goes to collect this apple, and for for if you break into the garden and steal one, it gives you long life, but it's a long, bitter life, hmm. full of suspicion and hardship and angst and worry, uh, a desire for power and a never end, un, you know, unsatisfied desire. Um, but to be allowed in to take the fruit, because Diggory takes it for his mother, um, and the fruit has a completely different effect. It's the same fruit, Hmm. but it brings about a a completely different effect uh, when one, you know, seeks, gains it legitimately and and shares it with others. You know, there's something quite 
quite profound about that line of thinking. It's the same idea, even though it's not talking about suffering. When Jesus contrasts a a wealthy person giving an offering in the temple to a, a poor widow giving an offering in the temple um, and essentially makes the point that it's it's not quite focused on just how much offering was given in terms of raw mathematical monetary value, but there's there's a significance that is actually along a different measurement axis. The, the um, motivation of the of the deed is yeah. is um, <clears throat> morally relevant, mm. um, which is not something which is unique to Christianity, but I think it is a concept of morality that is essential to Christianity. Mm. You you can't have a yeah. Christian worldview without believing that people's motives matter. Yeah. The the um, other idea that sprung to mind very much along those lines is that um, we discussed in a one of our previous episodes on meekness, that meekness is only a virtue that can be practiced at times where you have considerable power. Huh. Uh, to be meek because there are no other options is not really meek. Um, and Christ is possessed of a very large amount of power. In the analogy lock between the rich man and the widow, Christ is the very richest of the rich mm. men. Mm. And uh, he, of course, gives the biggest gift yeah. uh, to to the world. But it's not just biggest in terms of like its absolute value, but in, in its cost to him. Mm. Mm. So here's a question for everyone to ponder. I've just been thinking it myself, and I'm keen to see if, if anybody else's memory is... Well, I know that your memories are better than mine, but uh, what you can think of. Can any of you recall an instance where Christ performs a miracle for his own benefit or to, or to make his life easier or more convenient or more comfortable or safer? Um, no. Clutching at straws here, Luke. There is where he's miraculously walking across the lake because it's a shorter distance than walking around the shoreline. But is that uh, why he's walking across <laughs> the lake? <laughs> well, um, I don't think so. But but it is true. It is true that it it refers to Jesus, um, you know, crossing the lake to get away from the crowds. That's not quite the same thing as as but, for his own benefit but there's there's a but did, well when he crossed the i mean when he crossed the lake to get away from the crowds didn't they go in in the boat i'm oh, misremembering i know i think you're right because there's a couple there was, of instances well there was there was the occasion where they went across in the boat and he came and met them and that's when he called peter out to walk on the water yeah they were caught in a storm weren't they no, I was uh, thinking well, about that's the storm. The third one. storm that's was the, when they were in the boat. That's the yes. one where they were in the boat. Yeah, I was. When he was asleep. I was thinking of yes, that that's one right. where Jesus was was in, acting in self preservation to calm the storm. But I thought that was a bit too silly to try and say that because it's pretty obvious by the way the story is told that that that's not in fact what Jesus is doing at all. Um, yes, yeah. he was quite happy to keep sleeping through yeah. the storm. It seemed this. This, this is one of the traditional points that we make about Jesus' miracles, that he never did a miracle for uh, for his own benefit. That may well be true, and there's a there's a wonderful lesson in it. Um, I, I, I think we're going a little bit sideways. Um, when Us? In considering, the, in, considering, <laughs> in considering temptations. Um, I want to draw us back to this idea of temptation, and I want to su- suggest this. Temptation 
is inherent in the human condition, uh, mm. even in the morally perfect state. Ah, okay. Well, oh, okay. Now that you've you've opened a, an interesting topic, the immediate question I have, Ken, is: uh, Does that mean temptation will still exist in heaven? Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know. Um, I do know that it existed in the perfect world that God created in the Garden of Eden. Right, and it, ex- um, it and existed there's, there's for no Jesus, who, who was without sin. Yep, and so there's, and interestingly enough, it existed in respect of the same thing, at least where the first temptation arises, uh, at least the same physical thing. Um, Jesus' temptation there was to make bread out of stones. Um, the reason the woman was tempted in Genesis 3 and verse 6 is she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting that there is the temptation. I have to confess um, that uh, uh, things that are at least pleasurable for food are very much a temptation of mine. Um, <laughs> Likewise. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I will also say this, uh, just as a bit of a boast, um, I've done the Complete Health Improvement Program, which is known as CHIP, three times in my life. Um, uh, the, the last, uh, we just finished last night, um, and I'm delighted that I've managed to lose more than five kilograms of uh, fat, a number of centimetres around my waist, so that I now fit into some of my nice suits that I once used to be able to wear. And my cholesterol has gone down to be 0.1 above the acceptable level from being well above the acceptable level. So um, these are all good things. Uh, and I've, And the interesting thing is I now find that those things, having done it, uh, this more healthy lifestyle for about 10 weeks or so now, those things which tempted me uh, in the past, I've actually, uh, there's been a transformation within me that means that uh, I no longer feel like I have to go down and have a chocolate when I come out of court in the mm. afternoon. Um, and indeed, I've thought about it and, 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 and thought, I, I, would I like a chocolate now? And I've thought, well, actually, look, I really don't feel like I would mm. enjoy a chocolate right now. Um, so that's an interesting reflection on that temptation, that first temptation in the garden, the first temptation in um, uh, the uh, of Christ. And uh, indeed, when I've reflected on the Lord, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread, it's occurred to me, I don't know whether I've said this in this forum before, but it's occurred to me that that is actually a prayer for less in my society rather than a prayer for more. <laughs> it's 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 a Ooh, it's a prayer so for good, an Ken. appropriate amount. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really good. Not like more than I need. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's Ken. There's a sermon in that. Um, I need to remember that. Like we need a way of flagging or asterisking or commenting somehow so that we can come back because um, there's there's actually it's a good example of of uh, places where the Bible needs uh, some significant reinterpretation. Uh, and we've talked about this elsewhere at Sabbath. The aspect of Sabbath we emphasize the most is its is inactivity. Mm. Mm. Inactivity does not bring 
people in a Western culture like Australia health benefits. No. On on average, we're we're too inactive already. So um, physically, anyway. Physically, anyway. The parts so, of our brain uh, that deal with stress tend to be hyperactive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there might be some connection there. Oh, that's that's really good. Um, the uh, story I thought of was uh, is a story from uh, Samuel from First Samuel, I think, as recounted in the closing pages of the Paul Brickell book, The Dam Busters about a famous World War II bomber raid and um, absolutely astonishing scientific and engineering accomplishment, obviously resulting in a huge loss of life, including civilian life, when some Allied bombers bombed the huge hydro dams um, uh, that were in the industrial heartland of Germany. And uh, the man who invented the bombs uh, was... uh, very smart, and he was trying to think of ways to end the war quickly, and um, that was why he was involved with the war effort. And at the end of the war, he was offered ten thousand pounds, which for all the contributions he'd made, which were many. He was a, an amazing mind, and um, he knocked it back. Uh, and they offered it to him again, so he accepted it and donated it to a fund providing education to uh, orphans. Um, uh, people, who, uh, children whose parents had died in the war. And uh, the reason he gave, the author who was writing the book up, he said, he said, haven't you read your Bible in the end of Samuel? Daniel, uh, David's in a cave and the uh, Philistines are there and they've um, captured Bethlehem, or which I think is Bethlehem. Um, and David says to his three commanders, oh, wouldn't it, oh, what I'd really love is a is a glass of water from the well, that clear well, you know, in Bethlehem, and so his three commanders go and break through the lines of the Philistines and draw a cup of water and bring it back to David mm. as an amazing sortie. And David pours the water on the ground and he says, "How can I drink this? Um, this is the blood of my soldiers who risk who risked themselves for me just for my whim and fancy. I can't possibly drink it." Hmm. Um, and that's another instance where no no harm would have been done by David drinking the water. There there isn't even really any moral necessity for David to pour the water on the ground. It is just an expression. It 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 was an opportunity. For, it was an opportunity for him to express to his men how valuable they were to him. Hmm. And so um, when Christ says. I'm not going to use these powers to benefit myself. It may be not so much that it's inherently wrong in the same way that stealing is wrong, but it it is at odds with his purpose ah. of of trying to reach people, mm-hmm. um, and so he couldn't do it, sort of based on principles rather than yeah. morals. Yeah. So it's it, 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 go on. I was just going to say that that actually does shed light on on what the temptation is here. The temptation is not, hey, look, you're physically hungry. Why don't you turn this into food? On one level, it is. On one level, it is. Because that's playing, that is echoing. I mean, I like what you did, Ken, connecting that through back all the way to Genesis. And and I can't help but thinking about humans in the Bible have have a weakness for food. Poor old Esau uh, selling his birthright for a meal of stew. And, and, you know, the the theme of being susceptible to the desire for food is, is pretty pretty frequent 
But actually, Cam, what you're saying is that in, in the deeper sense, this temptation is really a temptation to cast aside the mission, mm, to, to, yeah. to deny the purpose of, of what is going on with well, the incarnation. One of the temptations is, if we come back to just talking about are these actually temptations, what, what are they? Mm. You know, the one about um, dominion over the whole world, hmm. that, that's obviously a, a distraction from mission. Um, the other ones is some, some food and a, a, a fly. <laughs> Again, I can't really find a better way to conceive that one than a, a, hmm. a brief joy flight over the city centre. It's... No, they're not exactly distractions. Mm. I, I I want to spend I, I want to spend some time on the on the flight, not because of my interest in it, but because it, it there's a real uh, it it highlights a real dilemma for religious people. Yeah. Um. But but Cam, go. Uh, this is just closing my thoughts. I found the story. It's not First Samuel. It's Second Samuel, and it says that uh, when the three mighty warriors brought the water from the well at Bethlehem to uh, and carried it back to David. Um, he refused to drink it, and it says he poured it out before the Lord. Uh-huh. So he made an offering of it. So, well, David knew that... It, basically, David knew that God was watching. <laughs> and so he poured the water on the ground and told the troops that they were so much more important than his drink and that he couldn't drink it if they took such risks to get it. Mm. One of the um, One of the most lively and fascinating uh, books that I've read about the Bible uh, is a book by um, Peter Gomez called The Good Book, the uh, subtitle of which is Reading the Bible with Mind and Heart. And he has a whole chapter on the Bible and temptation. Locke, this picks up on one of the points that you were making. He says this, I suggest that more people are subject to temptation in an effort to do good than they are in pursuit of pure evil or pleasure. Temptation masquerades most cleverly in areas of moral ambiguity where good people can be tempted either to do good things for the wrong reason or bad things for a good and high purpose. Mm. Self-deception, pride and moral ambition are the means whereby temptation engages the soul and in the name of virtue, vice is given aid and comfort. Thus temptation appeals most particularly to those who would think of themselves as good and who pursue the good as a goal they themselves are capable of bringing to pass. Mm. Oh, that's that's very good. It is um, those who aspire to goodness who most need to be reminded of and protected against the dangers of the moral ambiguity that is the seed of temptation. <laughs> the story I would link, that one would be the um, that hideous strength, uh, which is the last of C.S. Lewis's Cosmic Trilogy. Uh, I'm making up for having multiple episodes with no C.S. Lewis references. Yeah. Uh, but but all the people in there who are doing awful things are doing it to achieve a far distant utopia. Mm. Mm. It it brings to mind something that I've long considered. The, the idea that the end justifies the means is very much in fashion these days. Um, and not just out of reading things like C.S. Lewis and and biblical um, guidance as well, but just my own observation of how things go when people. You know, it's interesting when when people. Yeah, you go, Ken. 
Oh, uh, you finish your thought, Luke, and then I'll just gonna, just my own observation of how things tend to turn out when people take the approach that the end justifies the means. Um, is the, is such a complete lie? The end um, never justifies the means. The reverse of it is also a, a bit of a problem. The means justifies the ends. Um, you know, well, they were in love and. Um, so they decided to sleep together and it's true it fractured multiple families and caused lots of pain but um uh it was true love uh there's a, a, go on Cam. yeah there's an example there's the third uh, c.s lewis there's an essay he writes about <laughs> pe- the whether people are entitled really to happiness yeah i am yeah i know do we, it's called right to happiness and it's it's do we have a right to happiness and he he really sort of threads it apart. But this this idea that if it provides me pleasure, then whatever end comes from it must be justified. Which is the, the, which the, is a version of the end justifies the means. The, the, well, the classic example though of of the means justifying the ends is actually legal process, um, because at the end of the day, while the law seeks to um, uh, ascertain the truth and seeks to arrive at a just outcome, uh, the way that it does that is to say, uh, follow the correct procedure. And whatever the outcome from following the correct procedure might be, then that is the outcome upon which we will, we will, we will accept, accept as the truth. Yeah. Um, well, uh, and, and, and whether or not it in fact correlates with the truth is not important. What is important is that the correct procedure has been followed? That we have had, the, we've had the um, uh, an unbiased decision maker, a disinterested decision maker, um, and that that decision maker has allowed the uh, competing contentions to be given an opportunity for the competing contentions to be aired, um, and then decides it uh, based on uh, the material that's put before them. So that's that's and if that procedure is followed, then whatever the outcome is, is deemed to be the correct outcome, whether or not it is. Well, the thing is, can it has to be done that way because if you say if we say no, 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 we need to make sure that what that that the decision of the court aligns with the truth mm. as we know it. That effectively says you can bring any preconception you want to this, any bias well, you want. If you if you know what the truth is then we will just adjust our court decision to that. And, of course, the reason why we can't make decisions in a court based on what actually happened is because we don't know. <laughs> I, I, I was going to make the same point, Cam. I, I, I am personally not a favour of... Uh, uh, not in favour of rigidly over-adhering to procedure. Um, however, you know, that, that process that uh, you just described so well, Cam, uh, I find much more palatable than the end justifies the means because implicit in in the process of following a procedure to determine an outcome and then accepting that outcome because you followed the procedure, there is at least a level of humility in accepting that there are things you don't know. Hmm. And because there are things you don't know, you have to do things this way to achieve an acceptable outcome. When you have the ends justifies the means, the whole concept of that is predicated on the ability to predict the future. And nobody can accurately predict the future. Nobody knows what the true consequences of the actions were going to be. Although, 
I can hazard a guess in a general sense that when people try and use morally despicable ends to achieve morally valuable means, they are oh, sorry, morally despicable means to achieve a noble goal, they will not achieve that goal because mm. they use morally despicable means. Yeah. Well, this this then speaks back to Christ's temptations, doesn't it? Because um, Christ doesn't dispute the ends. He never says it would be a bad thing for me to be fed. Or um, when the devil says, you know, I'll give all the nations of the world to you, Christ never says, well, hang on, that's not really what we're working towards here, is it? What, what Christ disagrees with is the means. Mm. And mm. it's there that we need to focus. And I'm going to go back to, these are not my original thoughts, I'm going to go back to mm. Peter Gomez's thoughts. He says, with, in my view, varying degrees of persuasive power, that the three temptations that Jesus faces are one, spirituality, two, power, and three, faith. Now, isn't that an interesting thing, to think that spirituality can be a temptation? We understand that power can be a temptation. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But what about the temptation of faith? Um, and that's I... that very last one. Um, go, Cam, go. Can we talk about the spirituality mm. one? Mm. Um, the temptation is based... I haven't read the book, Ken, but I've heard you uh, in Sabbath school discussions before at Launceston, and we have a, quite an active group that's addressed this topic several times. Several of the members have, have enlightened me. Uh, but the temptation to spirituality is to say, I will not be incarnate. Mm. I, I will not belong to this physical world with its... Uh, pains and its appetites and its, um, you know, unmet appetites and its uh, frustrations and uh, when I am late for the shops and I need a parking space, I will expect God to give it to me. Um, that's a mundane version right through to when I am ill, I will expect God to heal me because I am completely above this physical world. Um, but, but, and for Christ, of course, he was, in a sense, completely above. But here he is saying, no, I might be represent an enormous amount of spiritual power, but I am a physical being, and that I will accept the consequences of that. Is this, is this connecting to the temptation of flying off the temple? Is that what am I? No, that's, that's the temptation of faith. Okay. The temptation of spirituality is to, is, is to turn the, the, the stones into bread. Okay. Um, that, okay. Uh, that, that, yes. Yeah, spirituality. Um, yeah. I mean, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. He must have been I'm going close to, do, close I'm, to and death. And I'm going to use this miracle. Um, mm. I'm so close to God and my God is bigger than yours. Um, Mm. That that idea of the temptation of faith is a very interesting one to me, because it suggests that there's there's a, well, a temptation in exactly what you were just describing, Cam, in having, having faith about the wrong things. It's it's, you know, at what point does faith become entitlement? Well, this is the this is the thing. We might not be just tempted to sin. We might be tempted to error. It may be the case that if Christ threw him off the temple, an angel would not be sent because an angel was not sent um, in Gethsemane. So you think that was just a long shot by the devil to kill him? (laughs) Well, no, but uh, temptations come in different varieties. And Mm. the the point is, and this is what Christ is effectively saying, Christ is effectively saying to the devil, 
why should I be so sure that the angel will come and and stop my foot from striking the yes, stone? Yes, I've I've always found Christ's quote there an interesting one. You know, don't don't question God, don't test don't, God, don't put the Lord don't your God the Lord to the test to the test, mm. which is exactly what Gideon did and Abraham did yeah. and <laughs> many other and Moses did and many other figures did. Um, and were apparently justified in doing well. Yeah, but there's That's also an interesting one to me. Th- th- this this is really th- this is an issue that has arisen in a in a really tragic way. And I want to be sensitive about how I raise this. But it was reported in Wednesday, July 6, twenty twenty two, of the Australian, and some of you may remember the story. And it's a tragic story of a group of uh, religious people. Um, in Queensland, uh, and the eight-year-old uh, daughter yes. um, uh, uh, had diabetes, and uh, the people in the house were praying for her healing from diabetes um, and uh, didn't call the ambulance when she died, and uh, the ambulance only called some days, as I recall it, after her death. Um, and they were singing songs and, you know, exercising faith. They They... This was the, this was faith. God was going to heal this little girl. She, they did, and they're being charged with, uh, um, uh, with the homicide, um, for not uh, obtaining care for her, um, uh, which they knew uh, was required, uh, or at least uh, which they ought to have known was required. Um, they had been informed. Yeah, and um, uh, it, I mean it, it's just tragic, but it seems to me that that's precisely the sort of situation that Jesus was facing. Um, uh, Put your life at risk for no sensible purpose other than to demonstrate the greatness of your faith. Mm. Now, I I don't want to be... uh, I I mean, I, I I think it's right and proper that that sort of dare I say it, with respect, religious delusion um, uh, ought not be empowered in any way and ought be Hmm. properly, um, uh, I use that sort of less inflammatory language, but ought ought, ought properly be called out as wrong. Um, uh, But the question is, where where and how do you make the judgment about what is a proper act of faith Mm. And what is not? Can I squeeze in a fourth C.S. Lewis reference? <laughs> I don't see how we could stop you. Okay. Well, he gave a speech once. I'm on fire tonight with these. Uh, there's a he gave a speech once to a group of uh, clergy on prayer, and he said at the start, "Look, I'm a, you guys are the professionals in this. I'm just a beginner. I've got a question I want you to answer. Uh, there are two sorts of prayers. Uh, we are to pray when we want things." Uh, one of them is the prayer that I'm very comfortable with. It's the one that seems to me most reasonable, uh, given that I don't know everything that's going on in the universe, and I'm certainly not all-powerful, definitely not all-knowing. The prayer that says to God, your will be done. This is the prayer of Gethsemane. I, this is what I'd like, God, but I don't I have the full picture. Um, I'm going to trust in you. He said, this is wonderful. When we want things, we ask God for them, and then, but we leave it in his hands. And there seems to be in that implicit an idea that we might not get the um, thing we ask for. 
He said, that would be fine. I'd be quite happy with that. Except the Bible also puts forward a separate model for prayer, a prayer where the answer or the degree to which it is answered is proportional to the faith in that particular outcome in the person who asks for it. And there are several healings he points to where Christ says, your faith has healed you. Mm. Or to the father whose son has epilepsy, you know, only believe and your son will be healed. And he says, well, help me with my unbelief. And um, he says those two prayers uh, may both be valid. But the important thing is you cannot pray them both at once. They are mutually exclusive. Mm. So you can't say to God, uh, I am confident in my faith that you will do this. But, uh, well, actually, I'm not so confident anymore. Your, your will be done. And, and the question that Lewis put to his audience was, well, how, how do we resolve this problem? We've got two uh, both recommended but mutually exclusive modes of intercessory prayer and, and there's both... interceding for others and, and for ourselves. Um, and, sorry, Lucky, you go. Well, I was just going to jump in and comment that both of them are good sorts of prayers, but can be quickly mocked with fun anecdotes. The, the, um, the you know, Lord, your will be done sort of thing. Wait, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll wait for your miracle, I suppose, is, is poked fun at by the, you know, widely told story of someone in a flood and the flood was arising and someone comes in a boat. No, 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 I don't need rescuing. God's going to save me. God's going to save me. And then, the, you know, they come come past with a canoe, comes past with a helicopter, and eventually the person does, in fact, drown in the flood and gets to heaven. And God says, but I sent a boat and I sent a canoe. And I said, and it's sort of That's mocking right. this point. You know, the person is is staunchly and faithfully waiting for God to intervene miraculously. And yeah. what what if God is already intervening and and they're just not recognizing it? You, you see, this is, such a, this is such a really important point about... Uh, and it answers a question that you asked, Cam, in the sermon last week, um, and that is, what is the nature of God's action hmm. in the world? How does God act in the world? And one of the one of the mistakes that we often make is that human action is mutually exclusive of God's action, and God's action is hmm. mutually exclusive of human action, so that they are not the same thing. Um, it seems to me more often, I, I approach this from, from the perspective of uh, how does God uh, speak to me? Well, the way that he speaks to me is through my thoughts. Hmm. They are no less my thoughts because they are God's thoughts. They hmm. are still my thoughts. Um, the, how does God act in the world? He acts through my acts. They are no less... God's acts for yeah. the fact that they are also my acts. Um, and, and, and this is, this is a mistake we make everywhere. And, and of course the, the joke that you refer to is wonderfully represented in the chicken song by the idea of North, yes, um, yes. Uh, which I would invite all of our listeners to find on Spotify or wherever you obtain your online music and listen to with great called, joy and pleasure. It's called the unfortunate tale of a country chicken. Yes. Okay. There you are. Thank you. Uh, from the idea of North. So I, I, th this is a really important thing uh, that we recognize that our actions do not exclude God acting mm -hmm. uh, and that God does not expect that uh, his usual form of action necessarily even will be turning water into wine. 
Um, uh, so I think mm. that's a that that that's that's a the other thing that thought arises uh, from that misunderstanding. The other thing, getting back to Luke's point about comparing this, not putting your God with the test with uh, Gideon and Abraham and Moses, is that when you ask how does God act in the world, what we usually mean is what is the pattern to his action? what What's the mode of his action? And one of the answers has to be the pattern is not very strong. He the pattern is act... that there is no pattern. He does he what seems... is needed in any situation. Yeah, he, <laughs> see, he acts quite differently with different people. Mm. And I would mm. imagine that if Moses was um, reasonably sure that he was the man for the job but was wanting to see some more cool miracles and said to God, oh, I'm still not convinced. Um, what else can you turn into a snake? Uh, <laughs> that God probably wouldn't have played ball. Mm. So um, there's a sense in which if you... If you do have doubt, it has to be acknowledged. And and that spontaneous cry to God is quite different. You know, Gideon's cry, you know, how do I know? Yeah, how do I know? Yeah, yeah. What, the, the... That's the contrast. Gideon and Moses are great contrasts in that regard. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Indeed, this is the point that Gomez, to come back to his book, I'm squeezing as many quotes from him good, in good. as I can. Cam. Uh, this is the point that he says, to believe that God can do anything is one thing. To ask God to do something, to see if God can do anything, is an abuse of belief, a testing of God. That's not faith, that is sin. Satan wants two things. He wants Jesus to prove his own belief in God, and he wants God to prove that God is God. Um, to tempt God is not an exercise in faith, but rather in doubt. It is to put God to the test and to make God satisfy our need for satisfaction and reassurance, thus subordinating God to a human agenda. This makes the creator the agent of the creature when faith maintains that it is just the other way around. Faith thus manipulated by a subtle tempter and a needy believer becomes an abuse of confidence in the divine rather than an expression of it, and the abuser is revealed to be a creature of anxiety rather than of faith. Tempting God, then, is to try to get God to act in such a way as to satisfy our agenda. Hmm. That is a very confronting thought. My um, first thought was that we are all needy believers. Mm. Indeed. Mm. It uh, it does um, pose some very serious questions for the many, or, the, or the, the pop, you know, the very popular ideas in Christianity around, um, how to put it, well, it, around that second type of prayer, Cam, that yeah. one that one of faith in specific outcomes is that not sort of the thing where the implication seems to be that if you choose what you want and you believe that will happen enough god will adhere to your agenda mm. the name and claim yeah name and claim it yeah that's mm. the one it, it i have i have I've real issues with that whole thing it's one of the beauties of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you see it because he initially prays, take this cup from me. Uh, and he ends up saying, uh, your will be done. Not my will, yeah. but your will be done. Um, which, which interestingly is a pattern that, I mean, I think the two best prayers in the Bible are probably Christ uh, and then David, because that's the same pattern of a lot of Psalms. It starts mm -hmm. off with just utter despair at, at what he's going through and it ends with praise 
Mm. <laughs> and acceptance. Speaking of ends, uh, we, we're getting close to the time where, we, where we're going to need to wrap up this episode. And wrapping up this episode is also wrapping up this season. Um, ah. So it feels like it has slightly more gravity, but it doesn't need to have the gravity. We, our, our listeners are, I am very confident, more than capable of dealing with a few loose ends if we leave them dangling. Well, well let's leave this last one dangling because we haven't looked at, at this uh, last temptation at all, at least the last in Matthew's narrative, um, of the devil taking him to the high place and saying, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. And this is Gomez's temptation of power. Hmm. Um, and um, uh, how, how many times are we tempted to say, if only I had the power to do this good, <laughs> I would do it. Uh, and mm. then we seek the power and yet it is the power that ends up corrupting. And, and we don't um, end up doing the good. Yeah. And, and what does that say about our attempts at influencing the political processes to legislate morality? Um, what does it say uh, about our desire for religious liberty? Um, what does it say about our relationship with government? Um, uh uh, th th perhaps they're all questions that uh, we can leave as loose ends for our, um, uh, and many others about the nature of power and how it ought be mm. exercised and sought you by know those what? who would follow God. It, you know, at, at this junction of uh, the end of one season before the beginning of the next, the topic of of power and, and how it's used and how it's conceived and how it's understood in the Bible would be an interesting one to pursue for a season hmm. or, or so. I, I reckon we could very easily uh, find yeah. a way to fill 13 episodes on that topic. <laughs> mm. uh, <clears throat> well, not now because uh, we're out of time. And we didn't so, get to verse 12. You were right. <laughs> yeah. so, Who yeah, would have thought? Just to, just to wrap up, Cam, um, do you have any C.S. Lewis references to close out with? Uh, not on hand. I was, I was leaning towards an Adrian Plass one a while ago, but I've forgotten it. Uh, so I'll have to find one for next week. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, thank you to our listeners for joining in on our discussions. We uh, enjoy having them. And we send them out into the void and hope that they are useful to you. Uh, we don't expect that everything we say you will agree with. And um, feel free to send us lengthy corrections if that's your desire to the address uh, sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, we also accept words of encouragement uh, or any other comments that you'd like to send through. And uh, please uh, send this podcast to anyone that you feel would benefit. And uh, please join us again next week also.